0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit stonegate-church.com. Okay, so a few weeks ago, we started a set of sermons that we have called The Bride. It's a set of sermons on the church of Jesus Christ. And when we started that set of sermons, we began by trying to define what a local church is. So I want to put that definition back up on the screen for you to allow you to see this this morning. What is a local church? Here's the way we defined it in week one the local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to scripture, they organize under qualified leadership. They gather regularly for preaching and worship. They observe the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion. They are unified by the spirit. They are disciplined for holiness and they scatter to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy." Now that definition uh, gives eight marks of a local church. Like if you don't have all of those marks, in some ways you are less than a healthy local church. So it's, it's establishing the baseline of a healthy local church. What is a healthy local church? And today I want to zoom in on one of those marks in particular. One of those marks in particular and hold it up and let us think through it and and work through it this morning. And it's the mark of disciplined for holiness. You see it kind of right there toward the end of that definition, disciplined for holiness. Uh, That word discipline, you know, my uh, assumption for a lot of us is we just hear the word discipline. We conjure up a lot of negative kind of connotations, but discipline, sometimes called church discipline, Uh, has been understood for really since the New Testament as being one of the marks of a local church. So in other words, like for a church not to be working through it, wrestling through it, and in some ways practicing it, uh, throughout much of church history, the view of that church would have been, you're being less than uh, what what a healthy local church should be in that moment. So when you look at the New Testament church and throughout the vast majority of church history over the last 2000 years, uh, church discipline has been practiced and pursued by both churches and pastors throughout m- the vast majority of that time. Now, he, we, you, know, you and I, we live in a very interesting kind of day and age, a, an interesting cultural climate That has its aversions to church discipline and just the word and idea of discipline. If you uh, go back to the beginning of the 20th century, so in the early 1900s, there was a decisive shift away from churches practicing this mark of a church. So, you know, I think there's like multiple things happening there. Uh, At the beginning of the 19th century, in a lot of ways, just that rugged sort of individualism that says, you don't worry about my life, I'll take care of me, you just live your own life, we'll all be okay, you know, that sort of rugged individualism combined with like that give me mine sort of consumerism, that, that sense of like, church, you're there to cater to my needs, don't be talking about my business, Right? That Those two things, that rugged individualism and that consumerism, all combined to in the early 1900s that the church just made a shift away from church discipline and that mark of the church. Now, in a lot of ways, that shift was cemented and sort of ratified in the 60s, 70s, and 80s all the way up into our time as the church growth movement kind of hit the church scene and sunk its teeth into the church. In a lot of ways, the church growth movement valued church growth at all costs. So it's like, whatever else we do, we are going to make sure that we numerically grow our churches. And with that, church discipline slid right out the door. Now, with that, and by the way, it, it, it has created a scenario where I think for many people, when they just, and people have been going to church for a long time. When they hear the idea of church discipline, it sounds crazy to them right? This shift has gone so far and, and, and so long in that direction. That, that shift that started in the 1900s, in a lot of ways cemented and ratified in the 70s, kind of through the 90s with the church growth movement, has made this story that I'm about to read possible and, uh, and very common in the church. This is one pastor recounting his uh, kind of encounter with another church pastor. So one pastor interacting with another one. He said this, he was theologically conservative and held a high view of scripture. This is his description of the pastor he's encountering here, which is what made his comment so tragically memorable. Uh, This other pastor, he, he asked me what I was working on, to which I responded, I'm working on a case of church discipline. I'd been strongly convicted about taking God at his word concerning church discipline and my own uh, congregation had recently endured a difficult and painful situation. So I shared that I felt that that we would not be faithful to the scriptures and faithful to Jesus if we did not strive to obey God in this area. And this was the other pastor's response to to the guy writing this. He said, you know, you're right, of course. In other words, you're right, the Bible does say it, It's in the Bible. It's there to wrestle with all that. You're right, of course. But you know, I decided early on in ministry what I would and wouldn't be about. And that's just not a road I'm going to go down. Now, I've been around the church scene long enough now to know that most pastors and most churches have somewhere along the way said you're right, it's in there, but I've just kind of made a decision somewhere along the way that that's just not a road I'm going to go down. Now contrast that sort of mentality, it's just not a road I'm going to go down, with the New Testament teaching on, the, on this particular issue. Contrast it with Paul. Let me just read a few texts to you out of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-4. through four. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So in this church, you have a man who is committing adultery with his stepmom. Verse two, And, and Paul addresses the church, church in Corinth, and you are arrogant Ought you you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, Paul says to to the church in Thessalonica, and we urge you brothers, admonish the idol, rebuke them, warn them, Bring them back from their error. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. This is in Second Timothy five First Timothy five, uh, verse twenty. Paul is talking to Timothy, his protege his kind of son in the faith, the, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may stand, so that the rest may stand in fear. This is the same thing to Titus in Titus chapter three, verses nine and 10. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they have for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Now we could just substitute a lot of other verses in from the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 6, Galatians chapter 2 11 through 14, Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, James chapter 5 verse 14. All of these other verses in the New Testament would just follow right along in that pattern. It's obvious when you read the writings of Paul that God through Paul is communicating to us if we want to be a faithful church it's not a negotiable issue. We have to wrestle through what these things mean and then humbly seek to put them into practice. And it's not just Paul in in the New Testament, it's also Jesus. Listen to Jesus address the church in Thyatira in uh, Revelation chapter two, verses 19 and 20. He says, I know your works, church, I know them. I'm looking at your works. I see everything that you're doing. Your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceeded the first. Verse 20, But I have this against you. Church, I see a lot of great things in you, but this is something that when I look at you, it's wrong in you. This has to be corrected in you. But I have this against you, Jesus says, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. He does something very similar to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter three, verse 19. Jesus says to the church, The Lukewarm Church, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And we could also read through again the passage we're going to work through this morning that you heard Brad just read Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 19. Jesus and the rest of the New Testament authors are showing us this is not a negotiable sort of road that you either can go down or not go down and be a faithful New Testament church. Jesus and the New Testament are showing us if we want to be a faithful church, we have to learn what these things mean, wrestle through what is church discipline, what what does it mean, and then humbly seek to put them into practice. There is is no sort of like, we can or we can't, like we can just kind of all individually make that decision. This is an issue of like being faithful to Jesus, faithful to the scriptures. It's, it's clearly in the New Testament. Now with all that in, in mind, I want to offer one warning and one disclaimer before we jump in. Here is the, uh, or actually it's one encouragement and one disclaimer. Here's the encouragement. This is one of those sermons that I think you need to make like a concerted effort to listen to really closely and really well. And here's the reason. Church discipline is much like suffering. You need to develop your theology of it before you need it. And in the same way, this is one of those issues that you need to get straight in your mind biblically and like where the X's and O's are of these things before you or someone you love is in the place of needing this thing. So that's the encouragement. Here's the disclaimer. There are many sermons that when I start, I know that I'm opening up a can of worms, and in 40 minutes, it is impossible to put all those worms back in there. This is one of those sermons. So you're going to have to be gracious with me and just praying for our church family that, that as we kind of work through this issue, that the questions you have, we would get you in the safe places, home groups, those sort of things, so you could work these things out and figure those things out. But it's going to be impossible to put every worm back in the can in the next 30 or 40 minutes. So with that said, that disclaimer, I want to just kind of structure this with three questions. There's going to be a what question, a how question, and a why question. A what, a how, and a why. So we're going to start with the what. What is church discipline? What is church discipline? Let me put a definition on the screen for you to consider that I think will be helpful in bringing some clarity to that. Church discipline is God's ongoing redeeming work through his living word and people as they fight the good fight of faith together to exalt Christ and protect the uh, the purity of the bride. I'm gonna read that one more time. Church discipline is God's ongoing redeeming work through his living word and his people as they fight the good fight of faith together to exalt Christ and protect the purity of the bride. And let me just point out a couple of things about that definition. First of all, it is showing us that church discipline is not punitive, that The aim of church discipline is not to punish a person, to shame a person. The aim and goal of church discipline is redemptive. It's restorative. The goal is to see a person's relationship with God and other people's reconciled and reconnected. The goal is to see a person's life with God reopen and renewed. That's the perfect, that's the the purpose, that's the goal, that's the aim that we're after in church discipline. It's not punitive, it's restorative, it's redemptive in nature. Now, the second thing I want you to notice about that definition is the definition is written from God's perspective, not ours. It's written from God's, not ours. Because whenever we're going through discipline, it never feels as as clean and as good as that, does it? So if you think about parenting, um, if you're a parent in the room, Uh, and and you have uh, disciplined your son or daughter. Think about the last time you disciplined your son or daughter. Um, I doubt that in the middle of you disciplining them, they looked up at you and said, Dad, I just want you to know I've never felt more love than in this moment. When when you just spanked me, I've never felt more like tender love from you than, than right now, right here. Dad, when you grounded me, Mom, when you grounded me, I just want you to know I see that as you loving me. Thank you for doing that. I doubt you've ever had that moment, have you? Now, why is that? The writer of Hebrews is very clear about that, the why of that. He tells us in Hebrews 12, this is the reason. Because in the moment, discipline never seems pleasurable. It always seems painful to us in the moment, right? So so I doubt your son has ever said that. When we're under discipline, it always feels so terrible to us. But as a parent, why do you do it then? You know they don't like it, right? You know your kid hates every minute of it. But why do you do it? Do you know why you do it as a parent? Because you love them. That's why you do it. It, It's an expression of love to your kiddo. Um, Here recently, I had to spank our youngest daughter. And and if you've been around our house, you know that that's happening way too often right now. And so uh, I had to spank her and it was through tears. I hated it. She was crying. I was crying. It was terrible. But, but why am I doing that? Because I know God is using that to form her. She's six years old and those moments are forming her conscience. It's showing her, uh, it's giving her conscience a sense of this is right and this is wrong. This is sin and this is obedience. It's also associating hardship with that disobedience. It, it's connecting that in her conscience. Hardship comes with disobedience and favor comes with obedience. It's showing her and me in the moment how badly we both need Jesus, right? I'm doing that because it's loving her. It's forming those sort of deep things in her that I so desperately want formed in her. And isn't it amazing how many things we learn from the parent-child relationship that directly applies to God? Isn't that amazing? Now, now why does God discipline us? He does that because he loves us. Hebrews 12, verse 5 and 6. That's the reason he does it. Because we're his sons and daughters, and as a good dad, he knows that we need that to be conformed into the image of Jesus. He disciplines us because he loves us, because he sees through the pain of discipline all the way to the pleasure of that discipline, you know, yielding that fruitful piece of righteousness, according to Hebrews 12, 11. That, that he knows that for everyone who will be trained by discipline, that, that fruit of righteousness is going to grow up in us. So behind every form of discipline from God, anytime you read a, a Bible verse that is showing God disciplining his people, in whatever form that takes, behind that discipline, in all of its form, lies the big-hearted God of the Bible, our good dad who loves us. That's what's behind every moment of discipline from God. So let me just stop and apply that first. When you think of discipline, and in particular the discipline of God in your own life, are you willingly receiving that from God? In whatever ways he's giving that to you right now, are you willingly receiving that? I was just thinking this week about Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1, where we learn this. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. But then he just gives it to us straight here. But he who hates correction, he who hates reproof, he who hates discipline is stupid. I mean, that's just kind of some straight talk out of the Proverbs, isn't it? He he who loves discipline, it's that person who loves wisdom and knowledge. But for all of us who hate discipline, who hate that reproof and correction from God, we are foolish, And I think that would be a really good thing for us all to meditate on as we're thinking about these things this morning. Are we pursuing the path of wisdom in our life? Are we loving the things that are good for us? Are we loving discipline? Are we willingly receiving that from the Lord? If you're a teenager in the room, are you receiving that from your parents as from the Lord? If we're an adult, are we receiving that in whatever way God is giving that to us as from the Lord? Are we willingly receiving discipline? What is discipline? Question number two, how does church discipline work itself out in the church? How does, how does church discipline work itself out? Now, this is where you need to have your Bible open to Matthew 18. And it's just going to kind of work us through how discipline should normally sort of work in, inside of a church family. And in this passage, I want to just point out five sort of steps of discipline. The five ways discipline shows itself inside of a church and inside of a Christian's life. And maybe you could think of these five steps as just five means of grace that God gives us to help us obey, to help keep our hearts tender to God, to help keep our hearts open to the Lord. They're five means of grace that God gives us to obey him and to love him. Five steps. Step number one, first kind of way that discipline plays itself out in our life is what you might think of as personal discipline, personal discipline. Now, personal discipline is pre-Matthew 18. It doesn't show up in Matthew 18 because it's what comes after personal discipline, everything in Matthew 18. So it's pre-Matthew 18. So think about how the Christian life is supposed to work. Just picture yourself tomorrow, it's Monday morning, you wake up, your heart's tender to God, your heart is loving God, you're in tune with God, you're driving to work, you get to work and you show up and that person that you really can't stand at work makes a little cutting comment at you and it just like cuts you down to the bone. And when that person does that, you bow up and you just respond and venom comes out. And in the moment, it feels so good. You just put them in their place. They now know how you feel. You have hurt them back. You have returned wound for wound. You just let them have it. And you're you're living your kind of Monday afternoon and all of a sudden the voice of the spirit pops up in your life and reminds you of the venom that you just spewed. And, And it just says to you, that there was nothing of God in that moment, that there was nothing of Jesus in that moment. This is what the Bible calls conviction. It's the moment where the Holy Spirit makes us aware that we have sinned against a good-hearted God, the God who is for us, the God who is so for us that he sent his beloved son to die for us. We have sinned against that God. We have sinned against the very person God has put us in the workplace to, to show God's love to, We've sinned against God and we have sinned against others and that conviction is meant to open our eyes and open our heart to that reality and then we respond to God in repentance. We agree with God about our sin and then we turn from that sin and throw ourselves back onto the the life of Jesus. And then we, we make that right. We confess that to Jesus. We, we, we confess it to the person that we sinned against. And then we do everything we can to make restitution, to make the wrong that we just committed right again, to, to clean up the, the wrong that we just committed. Now, that right there, that what we just walk through there, that is the normal sort of healthy Christian life. That is the Christian life. The Christian life is not just one moment of repentance, and you meet God and are rescued by God. The Christian life is a life of ongoing continual repentance that that process working itself out over and over and over, day by day, hour by hour in our life. A few weeks ago, Laura and I were uh, were chatting, and we were kind of in close proximity while we were talking. And in the middle of the conversation, she looked at me and said, uh, God, Rodney, I hate to tell you this, but your breath really stinks. <laughs> oh, I could just kind of chuckle. I mean, that's love, isn't it? That is, that is your wife loving you really well. But yeah, she just, she just went there. Your breath really stinks. And as she was saying that, it, one part that just made me laugh is that, you know, there are some moments in your life where you are fully aware you better not breathe within five feet of anyone, right? I mean, there are moments when you know your breath stinks, but there are these other moments when you have no idea. No, and this was that moment for me. I'm completely, if you would have asked me, does your breath stink? I would have told you no in that moment, right? And, And so now that is very, like it illustrates the problem of the Christian life, right? We have these moments where we begin to suppress the voice of the Spirit in our life, We have these moments where calluses in our heart begin to grow and things we should be smelling and seeing, the bad breath of our life, we just can't see and smell for whatever reason. We have developed this habit of stiff-arming God long enough that, that we're almost immune to conviction over this particular area that God wants to correct in our life. So what happens then in our life? What, what happens when, we, when the normal sort of healthy Christian life of ongoing repentance is refused and, and we take that sort of personal discipline that the Spirit is always doing in us and we crush that in our life? We run right past it in our life. What is a person to do then? What's a follower of Jesus to do do then? What sort of grace does God give us to help us after that? Answer, God graces us with church discipline, with church discipline. When we refuse to submit to the Lord, to hear the voice of the Spirit in our life and respond appropriately, God gives us church discipline. And you see church discipline play itself out in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. The whole passage is under the category of church discipline. This whole passage starting in Matthew 15. And here's how it starts. So think of this. We've refused personal discipline at this point. So then what? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This is where church discipline begins. So if you look at the line here, you've got personal discipline. Church discipline begins at the moment of private discipline. It it begins in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. That's the line where church discipline has now begun, at the line of private discipline. Uh, Now, let uh, let me make one just clarifying remark here. A church's culture is built upon and grounded not upon confrontation. If a church's culture is built upon confrontation, that is a really toxic place to be. So, so a church family is not built upon, the culture of a church is not built upon confrontation. It's built upon 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Love covers a multitude of sins. A culture of a church is built on love covering sin, not confronting sins. So most of, of your life in our church family, you're going to be hurt by people. You're even going to be sinned against by people. And the response that should be brewing up in you is, I am going to be quick to overlook that offense. I'm going to be quick to, to not confront them, but to cover that particular hurt, that particular sin um, with love and with grace. First, maybe you can think of it this way. 1 Peter uh, chapter 4 verse 8 should be the default setting of every one of our hearts. I'm hurt, I'm sinned against, but here's my default setting. I'm going to cover that sin with a ton of grace. Love is gonna move me to do that for that person. It's Proverbs 19, 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger and it's his glory to overlook an offense. A church culture is built on that, that it's, it's our glory to overlook the sins and the hurts that other people um, you know, wound us with. That's the culture that it's built on. But on the other hand, other sins have an outward nature to them, are more serious and detrimental in their nature, that the person committing the sin may be unaware of their bad breath, that their life actually stinks that bad, and the consequences of their sins to themselves and others, and there's been no evidence of any sort of like awareness or repentance of that particular area. And in some of those moments, love is going to not cover that sin, but it's going to move us toward that person in confrontation. So that the default setting is covering, but there are some sins outward, serious in nature, those sort of things that are going to move us to loving confrontation. Now, the Bible talks a lot about how that should happen. The Bible puts guardrails around our confrontations. So things like this, this passage makes it very clear. We don't gossip about the person with 17 other people. We go straight to that person and we talk to them about it. Um, Galatians chapter six, verse one says, we're to move toward them with humility, knowing that we don't see everything clearly. We may be wrong in our assessment. It also clarifies that we're to move uh, toward them with gentleness, not not a harshness. Uh, Ephesians chapter four tells us that we're to speak the truth in love. So our confrontation should be motivated out of love. If at any time we're confronting someone and, and our main aim is an effort to hurt them back, if that's our aim, then we should not confront because it's not, being out, it's not being done out of love. We should hold off on that confrontation. So the Bible tells us, we don't gossip about it. We, we, we move toward them with humility, with gentleness, with, with a heart of love. And we come to them and say, man, I love you, I care for you, and I saw this, I noticed this. It seems to be out of step with Jesus. And I'm wondering if you see that, what you think about that, what you see when I say that. See, there's humility there. There's a heart of love there. There's a gentleness in that. And if your brother listens, you've won him back. You've won him back. You've taken him off the road that's gonna to lead to destruction, and now he's back on this road that's gonna lead him straight back to Jesus. But what if that fails? What if, what if private discipline doesn't work? What, what if they overrun personal discipline in their life and they overrun private discipline in our life? What do we do then? Verse 16 shows us. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is plural discipline. So we've moved from personal, then to private. Church discipline starts with private. Now we're into plural discipline. You grab a few other friends, trusted people that he would trust, you would trust, and you initiate the conversation again. Now I want you to notice that the circle is kept intentionally small. I mean, Jesus is making a point to show us that, that it's kept intentionally small. Now, I think part of that is Jesus is showing us the goal is not to shame a person, that the goal is restorative, it's redemptive, it's the renewal of the person. What we're trying to, by God's grace, help one another see. That's what we're doing in these moments of of discipline. So he says, take two or three witnesses with you. (coughs) Now, the two or three witnesses can serve one of two purposes. Those two or three witnesses might be there to help you see something that you don't see. So they may hear the story, hear it laid out between you and, and this person, and they may look at you and say, man, it's like you're carrying like a, like a bad breath detector with you. You're so sensitive to, to, to things. You're going to have to grow some, some thicker skin and allow grace to cover more things in your life. That may very well be what those two or three voices are there to say. Those two or three voices could also be there to confirm what you originally saw. They may hear the story played out, um, listen to, to you talk about it, that person talk about it, and, and confirm that this is a clear, outward, and serious sin And their voice is now there to help bring clarity to that, to help everyone around the table see what it would look like to repent of that, to listen and repent, and to return to Jesus, to take hold of Jesus again. Now, let me stop and and apply this again. When you hear that, that part of church discipline, that private discipline, that plural discipline, does that feel good and loving to you? Does that feel like, man, that's a church family that's loving me and caring for me, that that cares enough to help me be everything Jesus would want me to be? Does it feel like that to you? Because for most people, I don't think it does. And here's one of the reasons why I don't think it does. Here's one of the problems we have when we think about people. When we are born, we naturally come out of the womb and people are organized into two categories. Here are the two categories. Category one. You unconditionally affirm me, therefore I love you. I think you're awesome. That's category one. Or category two, you don't unconditionally affirm me, therefore I hate you. Therefore you're an enemy. These are the two categories that we're born with. This is why, by the way, that we come out of the womb always mistaking God for an enemy. Because God does not unconditionally affirm us. Think about the bookends of the gospel. The bookends of the gospel go like this. You are so bad that God had to send his beloved son Jesus to die for you. That is how bad we are. But on the other hand, we are so loved by God that God would gladly send his beloved son Jesus to die for us. But it's that first part that we're so bad that God had to send his son Jesus to die for us that that puts Jesus naturally in in the category of enemy. It's why we come out hating God, not loving God, right? So there's those two categories. Now it takes the grace of Jesus to create a third category in our life. And here's the third category. (coughs) Affirm me when you see Jesus in me, when you see things that are evidence of Jesus's grace in me, affirm me. Yes, please, by all means, help. I need all the help I can get to, to follow Jesus well. So affirm me, but please don't unconditionally affirm me. Help me see where I'm dishonoring Jesus, where I'm overrunning the the work of the Spirit in my life. Help me there. That category is a work of grace in us to see that. And when we see that, that people that would love us enough to confront us, love us enough to help us see and smell our own bad breath, they become a precious gift from God to us. I just think about my own life and... uh, here recently, Kevin Hill, one of our elders, <coughs> he, uh, he said, Rodney, I, uh, I feel like when, when we're debating something or we're in the middle of working through something, that before I've even finished, you've already formed your argument and you're already ready to use it. I mean, it's as if you stop listening to me halfway through it. And I just, I'm so thankful for that. I mean, what, when I think about my life, where would I be apart from people loving me enough to say things like that to me? Uh, probably seven or eight months ago, David Hanson, another one of our elders, called me and said, uh, man, I see a pattern and I want you to investigate it. I'm not saying that it's necessarily true and the play out of what I'm seeing is is, is necessarily your thing, but I think it's worth you investigating and worth you doing some hard work on, on trying to figure out if it is. I just, I received that as a moment of like, God, thank you for loving me enough to put people around me who will say that to me, who will help me see things that I don't see? When I think my breath is awesome and they know it stinks, who will say that to me? Where would I be? Where would you be apart from people who would do that for you? Now, let me make one more point here. This is a really important distinction. It's helpful to think about church discipline in two different ways there is an uh, informal part of church discipline and there is a formal part of church discipline. So there's two different categories that church discipline runs in. Informal church discipline covers both the private and plural confrontation. Those two private and plural discipline, those are all in the category of informal church discipline, right? So, and and by the way, this is 99% of church discipline in a church happens on that level. You're in a home group. You're running with people in community. And you notice something in their life. And at some point you say to the person you love, man, I'm running with you. I'm seeing this. I noticed this. It seems to be out of step with the gospel. What do you think about it? And and you're having that moment and that conversation. And they look at you and they notice something. And they love you enough to say, man, I noticed this. It seems to be out of step with the gospel. I think you should, should consider that and think about that. And so this is this is what church discipline looks like in 99% of the cases in a church. It's, it's Ephesians chapter four playing itself out. We're speaking the truth in love to one another. And by the way, Ephesians four makes it very clear that if a church is unwilling to do that, it will never grow up into maturity. Paul tells us in Ephesians four, speak the truth in love, why? So that you as a church can grow up into the measure of the fullness of Christ. And we're never going to grow up in Jesus apart from, all of us being willing to engage in both private and public church discipline. So, so the default is we're going to cover sins left and right, cover hurts left and right. But there's some moments where it's serious enough, outward enough. There's been a long-term sort of a, a view of, of a lack of repentance. And in those moments, we move toward that person in love by confronting if we're unwilling to do that, we are going to rip the heart out of just the means of grace that is church discipline. So as a church family, we've all got to be okay with that. We've all got to see and receive that as a grace from Jesus for us. But what if that fails? What if both personal discipline fails, the private discipline fails, and now the public discipline, or the, 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 the plural discipline has failed? What then? Verse 17 shows us. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, we have just gone to a different level in that moment. So maybe you could think of like, you know, both the private and the uh, plural as informal. Once you get to tell it to the church, we've now got a line drawn, and now we are into the formal side of church discipline. And this is public discipline. Tell it to the church, public discipline. We've now crossed over into formal discipline. At this, at this point, it's risen through all of the disciplines so far, personal, private, plural. Now the under shepherds, the elders of a church are brought in and the church is brought in all so that they could join the chorus of people pleading and begging that person to turn from the road that is going to lead to their, their destruction and to turn back to Jesus and to take hold of Jesus. This is what Jesus is getting at. Now, look at that word church in verse 17. There's been a lot of ink spilled on that particular word. What, what does the word church mean? Some think that means that everyone in the church has to know about every moment of discipline. So that would be where some fall. Um, whether or not they know the person or not, it's, it's everyone in the church knows about it. Others take that to mean that the elders and the pastors of the church work with the people that, that know this person. So in our context, that would be like a home group leader in the home group. that They're working with the people in that home group that know this person, and together they are now the church that is around this person pleading with that person to let go of their sin and to take hold of Jesus. Generally speaking, I would say that if your church is smaller, if you're in a smaller church context, probably an all-church-should-know sort of a thing is the way it should play out. The larger the church becomes, more of the people that know that particular person that is forming this sort of church around them. And again, in our context, that would most of the time be a home group leader in the home group that they're in now let me point this out again it is gradual escalation single now we've got a plural a couple of people now it's to the church and when it widens out to the church it's not to shame them it's just widening the circle of people pleading and begging them to get off the road that is going to ruin them Now comes the question again, what happens if they refuse the grace of personal, the grace of private, the grace of plural, and now even the grace of public discipline? What happens at that point? Jesus tells us in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So this is the final, most painful step of discipline. Jesus is saying you are to consider this person now outside of Jesus, outside of me. In other places, the Bible refers to this moment as removing them from among you, that's 1 Corinthians 5, cleansing out the old leaven, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, purging the person from among you, 1 Corinthians 5, Right? Not tolerating the sin is Revelation chapter 2. So, so what does that look like? It looks like this. Through tears and just a pleading, grieving heart, the church is to take that last so painful step of church discipline where the church makes it clear that they can no longer affirm that the person is a follower of Jesus and therefore, they can no longer consider them a member of their church. They can no longer say that you can take communion because they don't think the person is a Christian anymore. Now, in almost all cases, that person would still be welcome to come, just like any person that's investigating Jesus to our worship services on Sunday morning. But, but at the same time, the nature of the relationship has clearly changed. It's no longer what it once was. It's different now. So maybe you could think about church membership and church discipline as two sides of the same coin. So think about those two things together, church membership and church discipline. Church membership is a moment where the elders or pastors of a church, along with the church, is looking at a person and saying, we agree that you are rescued by God. We've heard your story. We've heard evidences of grace in your life. And we agree that you're a follower of Jesus. We are in on that. So in some ways, church membership is meant to be by God an assurance of your salvation. It's to say, yes, we believe that you're a follower of Jesus. Church discipline, on the other hand, is when the pastors of a church and the people of a church are looking at a, at a person who is refusing to turn from their sin refusing to come back to Jesus who is willfully walking away from God and the people and the pastors are saying, we can no longer affirm that you're a follower of Jesus. We don't know that for certain. That's only between you and God, but there's no way we could affirm that any longer. So now we're having to draw a line in between us and you, in between our members and you because we can no longer affirm that. And all of that is done in in love. It's in an effort to awaken them from their slumber. I mean, that's the reason Jesus asked for this last painful step. Jesus is asking the church to take this grievous, last painful step to give that person a foretaste. It's the person that the church loves. And Jesus is saying, church, I want you to give this person you love a foretaste of the judgment when they stand between me, you know, before me one day, that you are fearful that they're going to receive. That is the, the final painful moment of church discipline. Now, I wanna be really, really clear on a couple of things here. So, so make sure you listen to the next few statements. I wanna be clear in what takes us to this point as a church with people. The sin has to have this sort of like, and the, the posture has to have these sort of ingredients in it. It has to be clear sin. In other words, it can't be like debatable. Well, it might be, it might not. It's got to be very clear sin in the scriptures. Secondly, it needs to be of a serious nature, doing incredible damage to, to themselves and the people around them. Thirdly, it needs to be an outward sin. In other words, it's not a moment where we're guessing about the motives of a heart. It is sin that we can very clearly see and or hear. So it's got to be clear sin, serious sin, outward sin, and all of that has to come along with a prolonged season of no repentance, of a refusal to listen and to turn back to Jesus. So so let let me clarify that by saying this. The last step of discipline is never a response to past sin alone. Church discipline is never a church saying, hey, I see that sin and you've admitted to that sin, therefore church discipline is on the same. It's never in in a response to, to someone's past sin. It's always a response to clear, serious, outward sin that a person continues to affirm and practice regardless of what the Bible says. It's the moment that a person says, I'm going to keep committing adultery and, I, and I'm not gonna return to my marriage. I don't care what you say or the Bible says or what anyone says, I'm doing what I'm gonna do. That is a moment of church discipline. But on the other hand, no sin that is renounced, confessed, forsaken would ever lead to church discipline. That is so important that clarity is, is given there. It's a, a clear sin, serious sin, outward sin, and a sin that has been in a long season of no repentance. But any time we renounce that sin, confess our sin, forsake the sin, and return to Jesus, church discipline would never be on the table in that moment. Now, I want to end here. Why does a church practice discipline? Why do we practice discipline? Let me give you three reasons and we'll be done. Why does a church or why should a church practice discipline? Number one, because we love Jesus and we love his church. That's reason number one out of love for Jesus and out of love for, for his church. A few weeks ago, our family was eating uh, dinner one night. And I just felt the Lord nudge me and say, you need to affirm your wife uh, right now in front of your kids. And so, uh, so I gathered kids, kids around, got their attention. You know, it was a moment of like, kids, listen, because your father is about to spew forth great wisdom. It's gonna one day save your life. So listen up to this. And, uh, and I said, by God's grace, Some of you are going to be granted with the gift of marriage one day. And I want you to think about what your spouse is going to be to you. In many ways, your spouse is going to be a necklace around your neck that's going to hang from your neck. And if you have the right kind of spouse, that that your spouse then is going to be a jewel around your neck. It's going to be this beautiful necklace and people are going to look at you and they're going to look at your beautiful wife or your beautiful husband to our girls and they're going to think of you so much better because of your wife or your husband. They're going to be a beautiful jewel. But if you get this, this one wrong, that the jewels are going to be ripped out of that necklace and it's going to, to mar, your spouse is going to mar and misrepresent you to people. And then I said, I want you to look at your mom, my, this beautiful bride. She is beautiful inside and out. And I want you to know she is a jewel around my neck that makes me look so much better than I am. This is what this lady has been for me. I love her. I'd marry her again today. And this is what I want you to have in a wife or a husband one day. Now, you know what's ironic is in the Bible, the, the, Jesus refers to his, his church as his bride. And in, a, in the very same way that imagery holds, that the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be a necklace around the, the neck of Jesus, with, uh, you know, adorned with all sorts of beautiful jewels, so that when people look at the church, they are seeing the beauty of Jesus in that church. And every time in a moment of personal discipline or private discipline or or, or, plural discipline or public discipline, every time that happens and we let go of our sin and we return to Jesus, it is making Jesus look beautiful. This is why we practice discipline because it's a way of loving Jesus, adorning Jesus's neck with a beautiful necklace called his bride, the church. And every time we don't, we are marring and misrepresenting Jesus to the world. So so we practice church discipline because we love Jesus and his church. We we practice discipline, or at least should, because we love the scriptures. There's no way we can be faithful to the scriptures apart from the messy, painful, tear-jerking, pleading work of church discipline. See, as a church, we have one of two options. One option is... um, we'll wrestle through the messiness of church discipline and and humbly practice it. Option number two, we'll make the tragic decision, just like the pastor we, we referred to at the beginning of the sermon. You know what, you're right, it's in the Bible, it's clear, we should do it, but you know, I've just kind of decided what I will and won't do and I'm just not going down that road. If we want to be faithful to the scriptures, it forces us to go down that road. And let me end with this one. We practice church discipline because we love one another. There's only been one time this has ever happened to me, uh, I sat down with the person that had just got to Stonegate. They just moved into the area. First time at Stonegate, we grabbed coffee the first week that they came. And before they even asked for my name over coffee, he looked at me and said, I, I've got a question for you. Do you guys practice church discipline? And I said, yeah, we try to do it humbly and and well. We try. And he said, great. I, I just wanted to make sure that you would love me well in the moments of of." those sort of hard, painful things if and when I need it. And that's always stuck with me because I think he's right in that. Church discipline, as messy and as hard as it is, is a way to love one another. I mean, this is how James puts it in James chapter five, verses 19 through 20. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. Every step of church discipline is motivated by love. It's motivated by that right there. We we want to to spare a person from their death. We want to bring a person back from the the way that right now they're erring, the path that's going to lead them to ruin and destruction. We want to bring them back to Jesus. We want to see Jesus win in their life. And and church, I I hope that, that if and when I would ever need that, that you would give that to me that you would, you would let me know my bad breath, you would love me enough to do that for me. That, that if you see me headed down a path that's going to lead to my ruin, even eternal ruin, that you would love me enough to speak the truth in love, even when it's painful, even when it's not pleasurable, that you would love me enough to do that. This week, I was reminded of the story of it's probably the pastor in my life that has been more influential than any other pastor. And when his son, one of his sons was 19 years old, he had to excommunicate, to do church discipline, the final, last, painful step on his own son. And I just remember reading that years ago and it just, even reading it this week again, just put in me a, just a begging prayer to God of God, would you please spare me from that? I can't even imagine that. And I reread the the interview where he talked about this, and I wanted to just give you the the paragraph of what he said. He said, The night after the excommunication, I called him at 10, and I said, Abraham, you you knew what was coming. And Abraham said back, Yeah, Dad, that's what I expected you to do. That has integrity to it. I can respect you for doing it. And then from then on, the pastor, Dad, said, He watched his son walk away from the Lord, trying to make a name for himself in disco bars as a guitarist and singer, and just destroying himself. We were praying like crazy that he wouldn't get someone pregnant, wouldn't marry the wrong person, wouldn't just fill in the blank of all the terrible things that happen when we're hard-hearted toward the Lord. Now, I wanna push pause, and I wanna give you the view of this from the 19-year-old son's perspective. Here's what he said. When I was 19, I decided I'd be honest and stop pretending that I was a Christian. At first, I pretended that my reasoning was high minded and philosophical, but really, I just wanted to drink gallons of cheap sangria and sleep around. Four years of this, and I was strung out, stupefied, and generally pretty low, especially when I was sober or alone. My parents, who were as strong as believers as I've ever met, who, were raised, who raised us kids as well as any parents that I've ever seen, they were brokenhearted and baffled by me. I'm sure they were wondering why the child they tried to raise right was such a ridiculous screw-up now. But God was in control. One Tuesday morning before 8 o'clock, I went to the library to check my email I had a message from a girl I'd met a few weeks before, and her email mentioned a verse in Romans. I went down to the local Circle K. I bought a 40 ounce can of Miller High Life for $1.29. Then I went back to where I was staying, rolled a few cigarettes, cracked open my drink, and started reading Romans. I wanted to read the verse from the email, but I couldn't remember which verse it was, so I just started reading the book from the beginning. And by the time I got to chapter 10, the beer was gone. The ashtray needed emptying, and I was a Christian. The best way I know to describe what happened to me that morning is that God made it possible for me to love Jesus. Now back to the quote. Pastor, having to to perform church discipline on his own son, ends like this. Four years later, he came back to the Lord. And the church had a beautiful, beautiful restoration service. He wept his eyes out in front of the church and was restored. This is church discipline at its best. Redemptive, restorative, motivated by love. And as a church family, I pray that we can practice it well. Amen. Let's pray together. I want to give you a second to allow the Spirit to sink into the things that would be most needed today and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. Maybe some in the room are just where this 19 year old man was at the end of himself, and all of a sudden, personal discipline happens. The Spirit speaks and starts to open up his heart. And Maybe that's you this morning. You know you are so far from God, but God is drawing and he's working and he's moving in you right now. And if that's you, the Bible says here's our response. We turn from our sin. We throw our life upon Jesus. We hold up our life to God and say, I'm trusting Jesus, rescue me. And in that moment, the Bible says that God does. He brings us into his family. He calls us his own. This could be such a wonderful morning for you if you'll respond with faith and repentance. For the rest of us in the room, what, where are new steps of obedience that the Lord would be poking and prodding and making us aware of? What, where is the Spirit speaking? Oh God, would you show us this morning? God, we need you. We need you. So so God, would you now come into this room in a very personal and tangible way and speak? Give us eyes to see, ears that can hear. God, would you do that? Would you give us open hearts, ready and willing to respond right now? It's in your good name we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.